0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is
1: DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here.
0: Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've put together a pair of tour mates, past and present, who are separated by decades, but united by a deep respect of American music. Patterson Hood and Carl Nichols. Now, Patterson Hood has been in rock bands since he was a preteen, and he's been the co-leader of Drive-By Truckers since 1996. The band has explored the sounds and ideas of Southern rock, Hood is from Alabama, over the years with sounds and lyrics that stretch the boundaries well beyond the world of Leonard Skinner. As you'll hear in this conversation, Hood is a nuanced thinker and writer. You'll also hear that, of course, on his records, both as a solo artist and a drive-by trucker. That band actually released two albums last year, the Unraveling back in January and then its companion, the New OK in October Here's a little taste of the title track from the new OK I'm a big
2: of your best late plan a world that I worth knowing in the plane on the
0: Carl Nichols, aka Buffalo Nichols, toured with drive-by truckers in the past, and he's in the midst of another tour opening for them now. Nichols, as you'll hear, has an interesting musical history of his own. He's been more of a genre jumper than his friend Patterson, playing in punk bands early on and then in the folkish Milwaukee duo Nickel and Rose. He just released his debut as Buffalo Nichols, and it takes a turn toward what Rolling Stone called existential blues. It's just out on the venerated Fat Possum label. Here's a little bit of Lost and Lonesome from that self-titled record. You may
1: wonder what went
0: wrong
1: Why am I always alone Why am I always
0: alone Nichols and Hood, that sounds like a great name for a duo, come to think of it. Talk here about the protests in Portland where Hood now lives, how Hood's politics drove off a certain percentage of his audience, and a mutual love of outcast. Enjoy.
2: How's it going, man?
1: Pretty good, how you been?
2: Been good. We finally got out on the road for a couple weeks, and uh, I'm home till about the middle of next week, and then, of course, we're gonna be out. It just felt good to be finally getting to play with my band.
1: How's it felt to get back out there?
2: I mean, I was elated, you know. It felt incredible getting to play again And instead of just being up here playing (laughs) in this room, uh, which got really old. But, uh, you know, we had super, super tight protocols, which I'm sure we're going to have going into the next one, too. So, like, I would come into towns where I have dear friends and not get to see them and stuff like that, and that kind of sucked, but the crew and band... Nobody wanted to be the one to fuck it up, so uh, hopefully we'll just continue that forward until this bullshit gets better.
1: <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a way to do it, you know, if you're careful.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's just keeping that bubble tight, I think.
1: I did a, like a week, just sort of like a test run back in July, and it definitely, like, you can feel some people aren't quite ready to get back out, but they're just like doing it anyway just to see how it feels, you know? Yeah. Everybody's just feeling it out. My feeling was just like, people are like, this is the best we got, you know? We got to go with
2: this. Yeah, I was out in uh, June and July doing solo dates. Everybody like was acting and feeling like you know we're on the back end of this. It's all I mean. It was like people were just like joyous out there, and mm-hmm. uh, and then by the end of July, people were starting to get concerned, and you could feel everyone kind of backing up a little bit, and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this last leg, I didn't know how attendance was going to be or anything, but it's been pretty solid. I, I keep hearing that the national average right now is 30% no shows. Wow. It didn't look quite that bad to me for our shows. It seemed pretty solid overall, and uh, some places kind of scarily full. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we had a really big crowd in Chicago and a pretty damn big crowd in Milwaukee. And Chicago was the most people I've seen in one place in person since this all started. So it was like, Holy shit, <laughs> there yeah, really sh- there's a lot of motherfuckers out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well Chicagoans are not afraid of nothing <laughs>
2: Yeah, this is true. Yeah.
1: They'll do whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely like a really, you know, topical songwriter. Has all this shit of the last two years creeped its way into your writing yet?
2: I haven't really written about the pandemic part too much other than the I think second week I was at home when it all started. I wrote this kind of almost happy sounding song called Quarantine Together. And I think I wrote it at a time when I thought we were dealing with like two or three months of bullshit <laughs> yeah, instead of uh... the rest of our lives. So it's like deceptively happy sounding and uh, probably the most happy sounding song I've written in a long time. Then after a little while, that song just I, I couldn't even, like, tolerate the idea of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I wrote a couple of songs last summer about the protests and riots and, and all the bullshit going on in Portland. And by bullshit, I'm not talking about the protests, actually, because the protests were kind of beautiful and uplifting and... Uh, You know, angry but productive. Yeah. I'm talking really about the shit that happened around it that's what ended up getting on the news. You know, we had, you know, Proud Boys parading down our pretty streets in their big oversized pickup trucks and Trump flags and rebel flags and Mm -hmm. shooting paint guns at, at people who were, like, holding signs for Black Lives Matter. I mean, it was just ridiculous One night in particular, when I was at the protest downtown, I was walking home about midnight, uh, about the time that the feds started tear gassing, you know, whoever was there, which was like, I mean, I literally know PTA moms that got tear gassed last summer, you know, and uh You know, people who volunteer at my kids' schools who got tear gassed last summer by Trump's goons. I know someone personally who was picked up by those unmarked cars that were going around picking up people in the night and stuff like that. So there was a lot of a lot of shit going on. But uh, as I was leaving the protest, I was really taken aback by the people headed the other direction and how different they were and looked and seemed from the people I'd been out on the streets with for four or five hours that night. And, uh, You know, it was like the whole demeanor. You know, they weren't carrying signs. They weren't wearing masks. I'm talking about the late night people coming in. You know, Uh they were there to fuck shit up and to make noise. And that's what got reported. Their actions is what got reported on Fox News or hell, for that matter, even by the so-called liberal news. That's what got talked about. And that's why, you know, I just did an interview 30 minutes ago. And the first thing the guy asked me was about, you know, all of the drama and violence violence in portland and Uh it's like you know i'm I'm standing out on my front porch and it's a beautiful sunny day and you know everything that happened in the news was literally like a couple of square blocks in downtown Mm -hmm. which i live really close to but it didn't spill outside of that very much at all only a few isolated incidents and you know there's definitely some scary creepy shit going on right now but it doesn't have anything to do with the actual protest that's for sure
1: yeah, Portland seems like, you know, definitely got its own thing going on there. I was in Milwaukee at the time, and by far the, the most violence and the worst stuff I saw was from the police and the National Guard. But it was the same kind of thing. Like, as soon as the sun went down, for some reason, the energy just changed. I was out there in a group that ended up getting tear gassed. And just looking in these people's eyes, like, no no remorse, no, like, sorry, I'm doing this to you. It was like, they were excited. Like, oh, finally, I get to fucking shoot some people, or at least pretend.
2: I don't know what the way out is. I don't know if it's going to have to come to some worse climactic head or if it's something that will just fizzle out. I don't know. I don't know where the answers lie, but uh, I just hate seeing it. You know, it's like growing up when I grew up, I guess I was naive to think that we were at least headed in a better direction, even if we had a long way to go. And Lately, it's been hard to say that because I don't feel like the direction itself is very positive overall.
1: The last year has been tough for me because even when that whole thing happened, you know, two summers ago now, I felt a little bit of hope for a minute. I'm like, wow, this is like, I've never really seen it like this in my lifetime. Maybe this is going to be the thing that creates some real change. But then very quickly you're like, okay, all this attention was on it, but people are still ready to move on. It's fashionable to care. But it was still the same amount of people who gave a fuck. They just were being heard more than before. So I'm starting to feel it fizzle out again, which is what I expected. But for a minute there, it seemed like this was the time.
2: You know, they say that the arc is always a zigzagging thing, but it's been particularly so, so particularly bad lately that it's just it's really hard to garner a lot of optimism right now. And Mm. and by nature, I think I'm an overall, by nature, optimistic type of person. And so, you know, that's been hard. It's hard as a parent, you know, when your kids really want you to tell them it's going to be okay.
1: Yeah, and it certainly feels weird sort of writing songs about it, for me at least, especially while we're still so much in it. I think writing songs is certainly a good way to process it. But I feel like getting up on a stage and acting like I know something right now, you know, it feels like a weird move like all i all i can do is say like i'm i'm angry and i'm confused which is plenty plenty good a for a song <laughs> yeah. but i think you know in the time where people are looking for a direction i that's i think that's what i felt like i have to make it clear like i don't i don't know i'm just pissed off
2: i think your song on the record that really really i mean i know that's a little older song because you were doing that song. I'm, believe when we were to get, when we toured, if I'm not mistaken, I think I I remember that song because it really stood out. And, uh, you know, I think that song's really beautiful and, and really vital and hits it on the head pretty well.
1: I appreciate that. But yeah, I think that was another time where it was not long after police had killed someone in Milwaukee. And it was like, every time I would try to have the conversation, Everybody was expecting some kind of solution from me, which was something that I think changed with George Floyd. Was like it's really not on Black people to solve a lot of these issues. But right. before people were having these, you know, conversations, you know, a lot of white people were coming to me like, "What do we do?" Like I don't fucking know. I'm not the one killing people. Why are you asking me? Right. And that 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 that's how that song came about. And then you know, it feels like you know I'm glad that I was that I wrote the song and I put it out because it keeps being relevant. But then again, it's like unfortunate that i have to you know relive that shit
2: our band has a song that came out in uh i guess 2016 called what it means and i wrote the song in fall of 2014 while kind of in the heart like in the the peak of the things going on in ferguson and right after the trayvon martin decision where you know they decided not to prosecute that asshole. I wrote the song one afternoon kind of quickly. I try not to think too much about anything other than the song when I'm writing it. But after writing it, I did a lot of self-questioning, you know? It's like, do I have a right to be saying this? Demographically, I look and sound like part of the problem. I'm a, you know, 50s white male with a southern accent, no. and if you're going to cast the villain in that movie yeah you check all the boxes you know i i I might have i might have a career in acting somewhere you know and i thought it was important for someone who looked and sounded like me with an audience that looks like our audience to have a song addressing that you know and and you know I. Didn't write a rap song because I don't know how to rap. I love rap, but I would never be so disrespectful to an art form I love as to be out there being terrible at it. And and so I kind of wrote it in the format of a Tom T. Hall song. I kind of mentally was thinking... How would Tom T. Hall address this song? I'm mean, a huge fan of Tom T. Hall, and uh, I think he was the master at writing a story song. And for a mainstream country artist of his era, he could get political, sometimes in kind of sneaky ways, all the way back to Harper Valley PTA, you know, as a kind of a women's lib before they were even calling it that song. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a a pro-McGovern song called Watergate Blues in 1973. That was the specific song I was kind of thinking of when I was writing what it means as far as how to kind of just the cadence and everything, how to kind of tell this in that format and kind of do it in the language and voice of someone that you might would have heard on country radio or something.
1: I think those songs are really important because, you know, when I listen to some of your very political songs, there are times when I feel like, you know, I get it, but I know that this is not for me. Like, I know that you're talking to your audience and trying to, you know, make it make sense to them. And I feel like that's a lot more effective than these sort of with us or against us kind of songs, even though those are great on their own. But I think sometimes you have to think like, Who's listening and how can I make the point to them specifically?
2: I think the songs on American Band were definitely written towards our audience, I guess, and, uh, or what I perceived it to be. The songs on The Unraveling were often written towards my children. You know, after American Band, we didn't necessarily plan on doing another record like that, another in-your-face kind of political, some would say polemic record. I felt like we had done that. I I generally always try to follow up one record with as different a record as we could. But the shit kept happening. You know, Trump got elected right after that record came out. Shit went from what I thought was bad to like hyper in your face bad and then kept getting worse. And my kids were coming of age enough to where they'd come home from school asking why they had a lockdown drill, you know? (laughs) And, And my son, who has a way of really cutting through the bullshit anyway, he was like seven and very, very concerned about the whole, you know, babies in cages thing. And it led to a really kind of horrific and uncomfortable conversation that we. Had to have, you know, and, uh, or, or several of them. It was almost like every time I'd have one of these conversations with my kids, I would end up writing a song that would hopefully put it better than I was able to when we were just talking. So in that regard, Unraveling was a super personal record because almost all of my songs on that record were written towards my kids, you know, with their ear in mind.
1: Are those conversations with your kids getting easier now that you've had to have, you know, so many of them in the last five years?
2: They're getting more complex because the kids are getting older. My oldest is 16 and whip smart, and they're both super politically engaged, although my son gets really traumatized by it sometimes and then Mm. and then wants to turn everything off. But then something else will happen in the next and his his curiosity will overcome his need to not talk about it. And so we'll end up talking about it anyway. I mean, being around young people, not just my kids, but, you know, their friends, their peers, you know, almost everyone in our crew is in their 20s. -hmm. I get a lot of hope from that, even when I get really discouraged about all the things going on, is I just... Can't help but feel like we're going to end up moving in a better direction inevitably, just because there's so many smart, amazing, younger people coming up who are really pissed off and really smart, you know, and uh, yourself included, you know, oh, and so course, I, I feel it, it makes me feel some grasp of hope.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, pissed off and smart; those are the two things that I aim I aim for. <laughs> so, thank you. I do think maybe I'm a a pessimist by nature, you know, the opposite of you. But I do feel that things are gradually and inevitably changing for the better. It takes a lot more energy to keep the world in such a negative state than it does to just leave it alone and let things be better. Yeah.
0: Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you
2: haven't heard Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, In an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.
0: Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, The Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. When does your record come out?
1: I got a record October 15th coming out. Awesome. Which I was... All right. Yeah, sort of working on when we were on tour together back just before the pandemic. And it's all finished, and then we'll be on tour when I get to release it. So it's a nice little full circle moment, like picking up where I left off.
2: That's awesome. I hope you didn't have a total nightmare getting your vinyl pressed. (laughs) Well, they
1: haven't informed me of any difficulties. It's
2: nuts out there.
1: Was it tough for you
2: last time around? We got pretty lucky last time, but it's gotten tougher out there. It seems like in the last year, I don't know if there's a, a shortage of something or if just demand, because everyone I know that has record stores are, that survived are doing pretty good with them right now. So maybe demand is up, and you know I think a lot of it is because there's a certain hip cachet of vinyl mm. that all of a sudden Walmart is ordering You know, a million units of Fleetwood Mac Rumors or Hotel California. (laughs) And that's clogging up all the arteries for bands that are, you know, that aren't pressing huge quantities to get their 10,000 or whatever units of their record pressed.
1: Yeah, which is hilarious because there's enough copies of, you know, Hotel California from the 70s and 80s to fluctuate through the whole world.
2: (laughs) There's no way they could all get used up.
1: Those are definitely those two of the records that... Growing up, like everybody's everybody had it in their house. Mm -hmm. Nobody listened to it, but everybody everybody
2: had it. We're trying to get our new record mastered by the like beginning of November so that we could hopefully have it next summer. Right now they're saying six to seven months is about the average. And of course, super indie bands that are putting out even smaller numbers, or having even a harder time getting in the line.
1: I'd be curious to know how that works because it's been what a good ten years now that this you know vinyl has been cool again. Yeah, but it seems like the actual industry of producing it hasn't quite caught up some reason yeah but i'm definitely glad to have this you know record done actually when i was touring with you the first time i didn't have any music out period like i didn't even have a song streaming so it's been like you know at this point two or three years of telling people oh yeah it's coming it's coming it's (laughs) at this point they all think i'm a liar but (laughs) this time it's really coming
2: (laughs) it's for real now are you touring with a, like a just a drummer or just yourself or are you taking a band or
1: I'm going out solo this time, taking the leap of faith, you know? Yeah. Which is you know, there's a lot of different ways to try to win over a crowd. There's a lot of different ways to lose a crowd too. <laughs> but you know Sure. Well, if people are listening, it's a test of how good your songs are. And if they're not, it's a test of how much of a showman you are. But it's always I think it's always I mean you you know, you do it yourself. It's good every once in a while to just go out on your own and see what you're really about.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think I had more fun with it this summer than I ever have. It was, I guess, because I'd been pent up playing those shows up here in this room for all of last year. And so I was just so glad to have an audience and honestly, doing those shows probably tightened me up and maybe a little better at it in some ways, which is, you know, as far as trying to find something positive from it all. And also I had new songs to try out in front of an audience that we were going to be recording shortly after, and uh, which is now going to be, you know, the new record we're finishing.
1: You still find at this point in your career that You can do things that will, like, shock people or upset people? Because I think, you know, you've got a a pretty solid fan base. People generally know what to expect, but do you feel people sometimes are, like, maybe offended by some of your political stances or anything?
2: Well, we ran off a percentage of the audience in one fell swoop. (laughs) And, uh, and, And that was pretty great overall. It was a little traumatic at the moment, but pretty quickly... I was pretty down with all of it. People would say, you know, you just lost half of your fans. You know, it's like, (laughs) no, I don't think so. I think we lost maybe 10%, and it tended to be the 10% where all the trouble came from anyway. Uh, Anytime there was any bullshit in the crowd, it was usually one or two kind of redneck asshole guys that didn't know how to act or didn't know how to drink or didn't know how to act around, God forbid we have an actual woman in the audience, you know, whatever, and they would... And all of a sudden we just didn't have to throw people out anymore yeah. <laughs> and and it was better but as far as the people who stuck with us and you know, I mean they're they're pretty solid, you know. It's just like we haven't had, any, we've had hardly any pushback about asking people to have masks and be vaccinated and all of that. I mean, there's always going to be some asshole online that's going to go, you know, you know you're know, you drinking the Kula, you know. But, <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah. whatever, you know. It's like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. like, very few. And how many of those people would have actually had a ticket to a show? A
1: lot of them are bullshitting. Yeah, that brings up a pretty good point because you know in my career playing like you know americana and and bluegrass for a while the topic always comes up of like you know how do you make the audience more diverse but i think that's a big part of it is getting rid of those people the troublemakers because that has a lasting effect on people who you know are are, are sticking their, their toe in the water to see if this is a scene for them like i came up in the you know in a metal scene and when I was, like, you know, a teenager, I would go to shows and I would see, like, Nazis showing up and stuff and skinheads and all this shit. And At the time, like, you know, I was a, a pissed-off 18-, 17-year-old. It didn't bother me as much, but a lot of people will see that and then they'll just be like, this is not for me, I'm never going back. You know what I mean? Right. And even now, you go to some, like, you know, folk music, whatever, bluegrass country music festivals, you see confederate flags and all this shit. It's like you get rid of that stuff first and then everyone else will just feel, you know, welcome.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would like to hear more about, like, where you came out of as far as musically, because it, I mean, it shows that you come from a pretty wide variety of stuff just in your approach to what you do, you know, and so I was curious, like hearing you say that you played metal and you played bluegrass.
1: Yeah, well, long story short, I think my real, like, you know, playing guitar day started with punk, because, you know, it's the logical beginning, because it's easy, <laughs> and, right. it's, and it's angry, and punk and metal was how I, I got started, and then by the time I was like nineteen, I had realized that I didn't want to do anything else, and I hated school and I hated jobs. I was like, "Let me figure out how to do this for a living." So I had like started joining bar bands, and I became the kind of person who would play anything for money. <laughs> just the right. complete opposite of a you know punk guitar player, but it just opened me up to all different types of music, and I just found my way into a bluegrass band, and I just really liked it, so I stuck with that for a while.
2: That's awesome.
1: And then the group I was in before I went to, did Buffalo and Nichols is called Nickel and Rose. And we were kind of like a bluegrass Americana kind of thing. But on that same kind of, you know, on the same side of that coin, was there a difference in your mind between like rock and roll and songwriting? Did you always see them as kind of one and the same?
2: I was a songwriter very first. That's what I, I started writing when I was too young to play anything. I started writing songs when I was eight. And, you know, I was, I'm old. So I turned eight in 73, which was like the height of Elton John. And so, okay. <laughs> so as so as an eight year old, I was basically trying to learn how to rip off an Elton John song, which probably, in retrospect, wasn't too bad a way to first start learning. You know, I honestly, maybe should have stuck with that a little longer and gotten <laughs> a little bit more out of that. I'm, I, I might would have a hit if I if I stuck <laughs> with that a little longer. Then, when I started playing guitar when I was fourteen, uh, that's about the time that I started getting into punk rock and. Uh, uh, but there was no punk rock scene whatsoever like when where I was growing up at that time. I mean, I was like one of maybe two people I knew that listened to anything like that. And so through my high school years, I was like the guy in the band wanting to cover people who died when the rest of them are wanting to play Kiss covers or whatever. I didn't really find my people to play with until Cooley and I started playing together when I was, just guess, 21 and he was 19. And then, of course, we've been playing together 36 years, which is just nuts. But he was the first person I ever played with that actually wanted to play the songs I was writing. And he made them better. So I was like, well, hell yeah. You know. And we played together in three bands before Drive-By Truckers, and he didn't write songs in any of those bands. He was strictly a guitar player. Then we had a little falling out for a bit. And during that time, he started writing songs. So when we started the Drive-By Truckers, we were both writing songs for the band.
1: Yeah, it's pretty lucky, you know, to find someone they got chemistry with.
2: It's lucky that we didn't kill each other before <laughs> we learned how to get along. because It took us a long time. <laughs> we spent the first 10 years constantly at odds. And then by the time we started the Truckers, we just kind of quit fighting. We'd both kind of grown up enough to figure out that it's obviously better when we play together, so maybe we should just stop being assholes to each other. And then as we've gotten older, and particularly after we both started having kids, we've really gotten to be close in ways that I never would have imagined. We're really good friends, and he's a great partner.
1: Where were you when you started the Truckers? What town?
2: I grew up in the Muscle Shoals area in North Alabama. It was a town called Florence. Cooley lived in a neighboring town called Tuscumbia, which they're all part of the same. It's, it's basically four towns that should be one bigger town if they knew how to get along. But they call that the Muscle Shoals area because especially musically, Muscle Shoals is kind of famous you know, for that. So we were part of that, which at that time was not in a good place because all the studios had closed down and there was really nowhere to play. It was a kind of shitty place to have a band. It's actually kind of a cool place now. Whenever I go there, I can't believe how kind of awesome it is. But it was not that way when we were there.
1: It's nice to see a town change that way. I look at Milwaukee that way sometimes because when I was really, actually, when I was really young, there was a, a really kind of active scene because at the time there were so many all-ages shows. I was going to see bands when I was, like, you know, local bands when I was like 13, 14 years old. Got exposed to all this great music. But then by the time I turned 18, all those places had shut down and, you know, the bar scene took over. So I spent my my later teens in bars, which was, you know, fun, but probably not all that helpful. (laughs) You know, Right. I wish it would have stayed as more of a community-based thing, but now it's kind of coming back that way.
2: I moved to Athens, Georgia in 1994, which was about two years before I started the Drive-By Truckers. And it was like moving to another world. I mean, it was the first time I ever lived in a place that actually had a scene and an amazing music scene and cool venues. And I got a job working sound at a club, which got me exposed to like all these different local musicians. And that led to starting the band. I
1: think it's really important too, to have like A little bit lower stakes of being in like a sort of a small off the radar town because you can be like, oh, that's a great player. I want to play with him, and his first answer is going to be like, yeah, it's a hundred twenty dollars an hour, (laughs) you know.
2: Moving to Athens instead of Nashville. (laughs) Yeah, I, I wanted to move to a town that had a music scene that wasn't a music business town. My first attempt at leaving my hometown, I moved to Memphis, and it was still the same thing. It's like, well, Memphis has this amazing music history, but it's not necessarily a music business town. You know, and my move to Memphis didn't work out very well, but I still kind of kept that thought in mind when I tried again and ended up in Athens.
1: My first time leaving home to try to do music, I went to Atlanta, because at the time it made sense. It was, like, the the center of, like, the hip-hop R&B thing, you know.
2: Oh, yeah. Like,
1: I think Gnarls Barkley was, was just happening, and then, like, you know, of course, Outkast. But it was my first time seeing, like, how sort of these industry towns work, where they don't really want to hear you play, they just want to know who you know first, you know? Right. And that's like the first thing, and then I was like, all right, I guess I got to know some more people. But I was, I think I was like 19 or 20, and I was like, uh, just over it. I was like, I'm just going to go back to Milwaukee and play with my friends, which ended up being way more fulfilling for those early years, you know?
2: Yeah, for sure. Goddamn, those Outcast records hold up, and they're so yeah, they're beautiful. Just, they're so, such yeah. so just incredible records.
1: Yeah, I wonder how many people they've inspired to... To go to Atlanta.
2: When that all first started happening, you know, and I was pretty new to living in Georgia myself. Athens is like an hour from Atlanta. And I, I remember who first played me, "Outcast." Uh, someone playing me, Aquimina, when it was still pretty new. Oh, uh, yeah. just Kind of uh, blowing my mind. <laughs>
1: yeah, I think about that, about those early records a lot, because, you know, at this point, the South is, you know, the center of, of the hip-hop culture, and it has been for, like, 10 years, but they were, like, there in the beginning before anybody knew it, it could be something.
2: Oh, yeah. oh It was either East Coast or West Coast, and all of a sudden, you know, it was, like, Dirty South, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Outcast just blew it wide open on such a next level as far as on an international way.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, when Andre 2000 had Hey Ya when that came out, it did a very similar thing because it didn't really, I, I still to this day, like can't categorize it. You know, it's like everything it's like <laughs> nothing. And it's like, it's just what you might consider a terribly cheesy pop song, but done so beautifully. It's like, they just have this way of just knocking down all the barriers.
2: It's just four minutes of turbocharged bliss. I mean, <laughs> it really is. You know, I, I, the first time I ever heard it, cause it didn't really sound like outcast and yet it couldn't have been anybody else. But, uh, you know, I, I got to record a, a cover of that song with Booker T. Jones. Oh, wow. We did a record with Booker T. And it came out in 2009 called Potato Hole. And that was one of the songs he wanted to cover. And at that time, it was still a recent enough song that had been probably overplayed on the radio. But it was a, it was a blast. And, you know, it's a, it's a fun version of the song. <laughs>
1: I'm just thinking, of like, you You were in, in Athens, right, for a while? Or that was kind of just a, a place where you, you found the band had a lot of success?
2: I spent 21 years. Oh, okay. I spent 21 years living there and uh, met my wife and started our family. We moved out here to Portland, Oregon, a little over six years ago. I can't even really quantify why. I, it's one of those weird things that just kind of happened. We were going to have to sell our house because we got basically developed out of our neighborhood by developers building really cheesy overpriced Luxury student housing, which is a really big thing in college towns now. And they basically tore down our entire neighborhood and our house was the last little thing standing. And we spent several years fighting it and then ended ended up having to sell it. We were kind of disillusioned by that whole experience and just thinking, well, shit, maybe this is the universe telling us it's time to have an adventure and experience something else. And it's like, well where would we move to? And it's like, well, Nashville makes a lot of sense. It's Mm. kind of close to family. And it's a, you know, there's a lot of music business stuff there. (laughs) My manager's there. Portland was really this kind of romantic notion. And both of my my wife and I both are, you know, probably to a fault wired that way. And so it just kind of came down to like, Let's go where our heart says. The band was supportive, and they thought it was kind of great to have someone living on the West Coast anyway, because we were, you know, trying to grow our band out here anyway. And, you know, I don't know if I could really recommend moving cross-country with your small kids to anybody. (laughs) Uh, We've survived it so far, and I and I love Portland, and uh, it's a beautiful city. And we've made a lot of friends, and been treated wonderful out here. And and there's a lot of great music out here. There's a really cool kind of scene that doesn't really get much attention anymore. You know, they you know that TV show is over, and now (laughs) now people think Portland's just this cesspool of violence and (laughs) depravity. But you know, it's actually pretty sweet place to raise your kids and, and to, you know, make art.
1: Well, let's hope people keep thinking that so you can uh, so you don't get priced out again. Yeah. <laughs> that is one thing that I've seen from touring in the last few years is, like, I think every city is going through this weird thing where people can't afford to, you know, own homes or yeah. everybody's getting just priced out of... I thought it was, like, a Seattle, Asheville thing, but it's, like, it's happening literally everywhere.
2: When I look at Athens... And I remember the town I moved to in 94 when I was piss broke and, you know, my buddy and I could rent a house for $450 a month and, uh, it had an extra bedroom. So we were able to find another roommate and make it work, you know, mm-hmm. it's like that does not exist. So, and, and all of those things are hard for maintaining a scene as far as a music scene, because musicians are usually broke and, uh you know, for a very long time, you know, at least getting started. And uh, so it's like, it's like, where, where, where can you afford to be an artist these days? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, how's Milwaukee like that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's relatively, because I'm in Austin now for the last, like, year.
2: Right. Which isn't.
1: (laughs) Definitely (laughs) not. Brutal. (laughs) You know, when I was coming up, I, I had one roommate and I think, you know, our house Whereas the upstairs of a duplex was like, you know, 650 And now in that same neighborhood, if you can find anything for, you know, under a $1,000, you are lucky. Right. Which makes it, you know, damn near impossible to start a band because, number one, you can't find a house that you could practice in. Number two, the neighborhoods have changed to the point where people are going to call the cops on you. And even the practice spaces, like, because, you know, Milwaukee had all these empty warehouses. That people kind of turned into, you know, artist spaces and all those places kicked out the bands. So I think now, without even noticing it, everybody's kind of switched to more practical genres, which is like folk music and electronic music, you know, things that you don't need to, you know, have a drummer <laughs> for yeah. pretty much. Which is like, people are still trying to, you know, keep the scene going, but it's just not the same because everybody is uh, trying to pay rent.
2: <laughs> I love Austin, and uh, but it's, I mean, it's almost... Like all the other places we're talking about, it's it's almost unrecognizable from 10 years ago, for sure.
1: I think you can feel it when a town, when the music is sort of driven, you know, capitalistically. You know, right. I, I personally think the quality suffers when everybody's just trying to, you know, get paid before they're trying to make art. But you can hardly blame anybody because you don't really have a choice,
2: you know. Right, right. Yeah, finding some sort of balance on all of that is you know, such a tough thing. I'm thankful that we got as far along as we did when you could still survive a little easier being really broke.
1: Yeah, it definitely hasn't stopped people from being creative. That's for sure. But there is a sort of I feel like there's a bigger rift now between what's good and what's not good. There seems like people don't want to kind of experiment as much because the risks are a lot greater now. But again, it's not stopping people who are creative are gonna they're gonna do it
2: regardless. Man, what else? Is there anything else we hadn't covered? It's been really cool, kind of catching up a little bit. I'm really looking forward to the tour, looking forward to the shows. And again, congrats on the new record. It's so good. Can't wait to bring it home on vinyl, play it on my turntable.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad we got to talk because I'm sure the tour will be, you know... Not the most social. It would be a lot of hiding in, in bubbles.
2: You know, well, maybe we could figure a way to merge the bubble a little bit and all that. It'd <laughs> yeah. be great to, you know, have a little more interaction out there too, both off stage and who knows, you know, on stage too. If you feel like it, maybe we can work something up together. If you've anytime you feel like coming out and, you know, doing a, doing a song with us too, it could be. Yeah, like, I'd love to, man. Do a little bit of loud rocking too. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm ready for it.
2: (laughs) All
0: right. We'll make that happen.
1: Yeah, it's great talking to you,
0: Great talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Patterson Hood and Carl Nichols for chatting. If you like what you heard, please follow Talk House on your favorite podcasting and social media services. This episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the Talk House theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.